This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Can we try that again? Good morning church. How's everyone doing? That right there is a classic example of habit, right? Because we've not had our pre-sermon videos for a long time and I'm in such a habit of just making that transition super tight, getting out on stage early, that I just do it without thinking, even though someone told me this morning there's going to be a video between your sermon and the Bible reading. But habit shapes us so intuitively that when habits begin to become ingrained in our patterns, that we just simply fall into them. And one of the reasons why we're spending time talking about habits this, uh, this series is because not, not that we want your Bible reading and your prayer to become uh, rote and routine to the point that they're mindless, but that the practice itself becomes routine and mindless and the prayer and the reading become deeply spiritual activities, right? Just like walking out on stage at the wrong time. So there you go. Nice little illustration for you this morning. Hey, as, um, as many of you uh, and as Esther just mentioned this morning, have been shocked as we've seen uh, the the scenes playing out in uh, in Ukraine this week. And uh, we will be giving you some guided um, prayer for that this week, just some ways that you can be praying for the Ukraine. Obviously, we know how to pray, but uh, some of our, our partners like Open Doors, uh, Compassion, Acts 29, have workers on the ground in the Ukraine. And so... We would love you to be partnering with us as, with them as we pray for what is happening. And I think you, you might have seen uh, this week pictures emerging on social media of Ukrainian and Russian Christians kneeling in the snow and praying together. And it just reminded me of um, the power that prayer has to offer such a counter-narrative to the narrative of missiles, guns, and war. And here you have Christians on their knees in the snow, practicing the subversive methods of the way of Jesus, praying to the God of the universe that he would have mercy and uniting people together. Ukrainian and Russian Christians kneeling together and praying. And for me, that's a beautiful picture of the power of the church. And what a, what a great reminder for us as we begin to look at prayer this morning. So we are going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, camped out there in the Lord's Prayer. If you have a Bible, keep it open there. If not, you can follow along on the verses behind me. But I'm going to pray for us as we jump into God's Word together. So please join me. Father, we thank you that you have instructed us to pray. And so often we forget what a staggering privilege that is. That you listen to us. Father, it's hard to find a person, a human, to listen to us often deeply. But you listen to us. God, I pray this morning as we sit in your word that you would speak. God, we, we need to have a bit of a correction in our prayer lives. I pray that you'd be open, you'd, you would open us to the work you want to do. 
But Father, I pray for every person this morning here in the room and those watching online. That you would draw us into deep, rich intimacy and communion with you, our Father. I pray that you would do your work now by your Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said... Amen. Amen. You know, one of the questions that I've had um, with this series, Lives Ordered Around the Way of Jesus, as we seek to model our lives uh, on the lifestyle of Jesus, not just listen to his teaching, but look at his life, examine his life, examine the way that he lived, examine his practices, and learn to live lives like him. One of the questions that arises from that is, well, how prescriptive really is the life of Jesus? Like, how much of his lifestyle should we really be following? And uh, I think it's a brilliant question, right? Because what's clear is that um, none of us turned up this morning in a long Middle Eastern robe with leather sandals on and long hair and a beard. Well, for the boys, you know, long hair and a beard. Um, Because culturally, we're very different. And so I think that's that's a brilliant question because we need to think about the parts of the the life of Jesus that we are called to model and emulate and the ones that we aren't. And and I think the difference is this. Very simply, there are some parts of the life of Jesus that we would call his cultural lifestyle, his cultural way of living, things that are are time-bound, the food that Jesus ate, the clothing that he wears, the nomadic lifestyle that he kind of lived as he traveled around and taught and preached. Those are things that we would say are not timeless. They're time-bound. They're cultural principles. We don't have to eat a Middle Eastern diet. We don't have to wear Middle Eastern clothes necessarily unless you would so choose to, to, to dress that way. There are other things about his life that I would call his theological lifestyle. They are things that Scripture affirms elsewhere and things that are timeless, that are true no matter what culture you live in. Things like Jesus' prayer life, his scripture meditation, things like, um, or let me give you an example. So one of the things we see in the life of Jesus is that he discipled how many disciples? Twelve. He had a few more than that. There was the 72. And, and, uh, but particularly Jesus discipled 12 disciples. They're named. They're called the apostles. And then within the 12, he had a special three, Peter, James, and John. And so some would say, well, because Jesus discipled 12 people, and if we're going to follow Jesus, we all need to disciple 12 people and then have a special three that we are focused on. Some want to take that as a pattern of discipleship, but I would suggest that that isn't the pattern. The principle is what needs to remain, and that is that Jesus committed himself to making disciples life on life, life in community and life in the context of mission. And it doesn't really matter about the number as long as we're committed to the principle. Make sense? So there are some things about the life of Jesus that we would consider his cultural, contextual lifestyle. There are other things that are his theological lifestyle that we are called to emulate and to model our lives on. Paul will say, follow me as I follow the example of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so today we're talking about abiding prayer, about prayer that is a consistent habit of our life, prayer that is almost a reflex response for us. 
But the only reason that we can pray and that God will listen is because of the good news that Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved in our place for our sins and was raised again to new life, bringing us into the throne room of God and giving us access to the Father. We can only pray because of the good news, because of the gospel. Tim Keller puts it this way. Prayer is an ongoing conversation that God started. I love that. Prayer is an ongoing conversation that God started. In prayer, we respond to God's loving initiative. We respond to God's loving and gracious self-revelation of himself. We would know nothing of who God is. Would he not have revealed himself in Scripture, revealed himself in his creative works? We respond because God has first spoken. And without the good news, there is no relationship with God. There is no communion with the Father. There is no drawing near to the throne of grace and finding help in our time of need. Prayer is an ongoing conversation that God started. Now, that's really important for us. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a believer, you wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus, there is one prayer that God loves to hear. And it's the prayer that says, God, would you show yourself to me? God, would you help me understand who you are? Would you reveal yourself? Jesus promises that those who ask and those who seek and those who knock will find. But prayer rests on the foundation of the gospel. If it weren't, we have no relationship So I want us this morning to think firstly about the life of Jesus, the prayer life of Jesus, or the life of prayer that Jesus had, because Jesus prayed frequently. Read the Gospels and you will see that Jesus often goes away to a solitary place, goes up to a mountain to pray. I'll give you a few examples. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was Jesus' regular habit. He often, regularly got away and withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Or Luke, 16, or Luke 6 verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Jesus held an all-night prayer meeting. Jesus prayed all the time. He prayed before he chose the 12 disciples. He prayed for people's healing. He prayed when he experienced suffering. He prayed when he was busy, right? Jesus was never so busy that he couldn't find time or make time rather to pray. Jesus prayed for himself that he would be obedient to the Father's will. That's the Garden of Gethsemane narrative there. Jesus prayed for people and get this in John 16, 17, we're going to be there in our, in our series called The Upper Room later this year. Jesus prayed for us, for you, for the church. Jesus' life was a life of constant prayer. You know, the one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them was what? Prayer. It wasn't miracles. It wasn't like the disciples came up and said, hey, Jesus, do you reckon you could teach us the multiplying the five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people because that's a pretty neat trick. Could be a pretty lucrative commercial 
outfit, this, you know, if we could just do this, you know, like they didn't, they didn't come up to him and say, hey, could you teach us your technique for teaching other people? Because it seems like people marvel at your teaching. No, so attractive and compelling was the prayer life of Jesus that the disciples say to him, if you go to Luke 11, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they've seen in the life of Jesus this compellingly attractive prayer life. You know, there's no other spiritual practice like prayer that is more explicit in the life of Jesus than prayer in in the Gospels. That, That is probably the most prominent spiritual practice we see Jesus walking in in the New Testament. And so as we think about Lives ordered around the way of Jesus. What it means to learn, to love, and live like Jesus. Remember, that's our definition of a follower of Jesus. Someone who is learning to love and live like Jesus. How does prayer form us? How does prayer make us more like Jesus? And that's the question I want to answer answer this morning. And I want to use the Lord's Prayer to frame three ways. There's heaps more than this, but we're only going to look at three ways this morning. So come back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 with me. The Lord's Prayer. It's very familiar for those of you who have grown up in church, but this is what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer starts with a staggering word. Father, our Father. In Greek, the word is pater. Or in Aramaic, it's the word Abba. And these are, these are very intimate words. In English, they might be words like papa or dada. This is the intimacy that we have as access to God as Father. Father, our Father. We have this access because of our baptismal identity. We have been baptized into the name of the Father. Son and Holy Spirit. We have this access because of our union with Christ, that we have been made co-heirs with Jesus, that we are adopted into the family of God. We, We have this access because of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, whom according to Galatians 4, 6, God has sent and by whom we cry, Abba, Father, our Father, means that we get to talk to the God of the universe and he listens. That, just that truth alone is incredible. That the God of the universe would pay attention to what we say. But it's more than that. By in, by, when Jesus instructs us to pray our Father, what he's actually doing He's inviting us into the same experience of intimacy that he himself has. That's incredible. That Jesus is inviting us to pray just like he prays. My Father, Abba. Prayer, Christian prayer at least, 
is the privilege of a son or daughter coming before their dad and praying and talking and chatting. What other God is there like that? That is so beautifully intimate and close. Paul will say it like this in Romans 8.15. He says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you've received brought about your adoption to sonship. That is, the spirit has been given and has brought about this sense of adoption that, that he has made you like the firstborn son in the family, that you are an heir to the inheritance of the father, a co-heir with Jesus to inherit the universe. He has given us a spirit that has brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Part of the ministry of the spirit is to confirm within us that you belong to God, that you are his child, that he has chosen you, that he has set his affection upon you and loves you, that you are special to him. And do you know what this means? This means that God is not apathetic and indifferent to our prayers. It means he hears, that he's attentive, that he listens. I love the image of the listening father in Psalm 116 where it says that God bends his ear towards the prayers of his people. He leans down and he listens in. I love that picture of a father who pays attention to his children. That's what I do. Often when my kids talk to me, I will, I will get down on my knee, get at them with eye level, look them in the eyes and pay attention to them so that they know that I'm listening. That is a picture of our Father. You know, Jesus himself prayed to the Father or addressed God as Father about 70 times in the Gospels. About 70 times. But there's one time that he didn't. And that one time was on the cross. Where he prays, instead of Father, he prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm not sure what the theological point behind that is. But what I do know is that the only reason we can utter that word, Father, is because of what Jesus has done. It's what N.T. Wright calls a cheeky celebration of God's grace. Cheeky because it would actually be quite profoundly inappropriate for you to call God Father were it not for the work of Jesus. It would be quite, you know, uh, uh, Ruth has just shared this morning, you know, that, that Isaiah calls Crystal mummy, right? Cute. But if that persists for a long period of time, you're like, hmm. This is, this is not, it's not quite right. There's something wrong there, right? The only reason that we can cry, Abba, is because of the work of Jesus. It is the cheeky celebration of God's grace. And so in prayer, we enjoy intimate relationship with God our Father. Prayer is relational and not transactional. Prayer is not like a vending machine where you put your money in, key in the number and receive what you have wanted. 
Right? That, that's a transaction. You pay for something, you receive something. Right? Your prayer is not the debt that you owe in order to get what you want. Prayer is relational. And to the extent that we grasp the privilege of our adoption to pray to God as Father will be the extent to which Jesus is formed in us. I'll say that again. The extent to which we grasp our privilege of adoption, that we get to pray to God as Father, that will be the extent to which Christ is formed in us. Because to be God's beloved child, that is our truest identity. That is the truest sense of who God has made us to be as humans made in the image of God. And so it's there in the presence of the Father that we realize our true selves, the intended purpose that God had for humanity. And we enjoy intimacy with God the Father and embrace our identity as sons and daughters of the King. And all of that happens when we open our mouths and say, Father, Father. Prayer shapes us. The act of prayer is helping us embody and enjoy what it means to be adopted as God's children. Well, secondly, the second thing, that line from the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. Verse 10 there, chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By inviting us to pray his kingdom come, his will be done, God is not only calling our prayers to to, to be higher than simply our kingdoms and our dreams and our wills, although that is true, he's also calling us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Like the, the Lord's Prayer isn't just to be prayed, it's to be lived. Frank um, Labak says that the Lord's Prayer is enlistment into the kingdom of God. This is an invitation to be a part of what God is doing in the world and if you're anything like me for so long, I thought that my prayers were, were, were about me trying to convince God to do the things that I thought he wanted to do in the world. Anyone else want to admit to that? My prayers was me trying to convince God to do what I thought he should be doing in the world. When all along Jesus is reminding me that prayer is actually about God's plans becoming my plans. God's will becoming my will. God's plans and purposes must always predicate our prayers. The will of God has to shape the way that we think and we pray and we live our lives. Richard Foster says this, prayer involves transformed passions. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, and to will the things he wills. And if that is not a definition of Christ-likeness, I don't know what is. To love the things that God loves, to will the things that God wills, to want the will of the Father to happen. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is an invitation for us to participate in what God is doing in the world. 
And, you know, that changes the way we pray our prayers, or I think at least it should. It, it needs to continue the, the way that I pray my prayers. And I think we can do this by simply asking God some questions, by saying, God, where are you at work today? Where are you at work in my workplace? Who, whose life are you prodding at the moment? And, and how do you want me to, to step into that? Do you, are you using me to reach this person? What are you doing, God? How can I participate in what you are doing? How can I be a part of your will and your kingdom? And I think that radically shapes who we are because that is about us being involved in what God is doing in the world, not so much us trying to strong arm and twist God's arm to do what we want him to do. A.W. Tozer says that prayer is not an assault on the reluctance of God. A shopping trolley of requests that we just ram into the gates of heaven. A prayer is about participating in what God is already doing as we posture ourselves under his plans and purposes and say, God, would you show me what are you already doing? Because God's at work. And how can I play my part? Finally, finally, the Lord, the prayer is about trust and dependence and humility. Come back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Give us, forgive us, lead us. They are expressions of need. They're expressions of dependence. And so prayer is actually about relinquishing control of our lives and handing them over to God. Our daily necessities of daily bread, our spiritual need for salvation, for forgiveness, for spiritual protection against the enemy, they are God's to give and ours to receive by prayer. And as we pray for, for the basic things that we need to the, the most important thing that we need, as we come before God and ask those things, we're not only declaring that God is sovereign and in control, but we are participating in the reality that we are not. Prayer itself is an act of dependence and trust and humility in our lives. Psalm 10 verse 4 says this, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Prayerlessness is a form of pride. Prayer is a form of humility. My good friend, Pastor Adam Ramsey from Liberty Church on the Gold Coast says this in his book, Truth on Fire. Perhaps for many of us, the greatest indicator of pride in our hearts is not the presence of boasting, but the absence of prayer. Yeah, it kind of stings that one, doesn't it? Perhaps for many of us, the greatest indicator of pride in our hearts is not the presence of boasting, but the absence of prayer. Prayer is an act of humility, an act of surrender. That's why the posture of prayer, of kneeling, is so appropriate. Because this is about handing our lives over to God in humility and saying, God, you know what? If I'm in charge of this thing, it's a train wreck. I need you for everything from my daily necessities to my salvation. 
Prayer shapes us. It forms us into the likeness of Jesus. Prayer, as we pray, sorry, we enjoy intimacy with our Father, just like Jesus did. As we pray, God not only changes the world, he changes us and invites us to participate with him in what he is doing. And as we pray, we cultivate faith and trust and humility. So how do we grow in prayer? Because if you remember back to Vision Sunday, that's the dream that we have for Anchor Church this year, that we would all grow in prayer, no matter where you're at. If you're just starting out on this journey of faith, that you would know what it looks like to take the first steps of deepening your prayer life, or for you at the other end of the spectrum, a seasoned follower of Jesus who is worn holes in their their jeans praying, what does it look like for you to go even deeper in your intimacy with God? Well, A.W. Tozer says this about prayer. He says, prayer cannot be taught. What was the point of this sermon? (laughs) Prayer cannot be taught. It can only be done. The best any school or any book or any sermon can do is to recommend prayer and exhort its practice. Praying itself must be the work of the individual. That it is the one religious work that gets done with the least enthusiasm cannot be but one of the greatest tragedies of our time. Prayer cannot be taught. It can only be done. And so today I want to uh, walk you through our 70 days of prayer. This is our attempt to help us do what we all probably want to do, but sometimes lack the means to get it done. And together to be able to go on a journey of enjoying our adopted privilege of calling God as Father. To pray for 70 days or 10 weeks. As Esther has already mentioned at the start of the service, science tells us that it takes anywhere between 8 to 264 days to form a new habit, depending on the habit that you're trying to form. But on average, 66 days, 10 weeks. That's how long it takes to form a new habit. This habit isn't about um, a challenge where you tick boxes and then put it away and finish what This isn't about doing something. It's about becoming someone. It's about becoming the type of person who enjoys praying, who loves intimacy with the Father and who looks forward to that and who does it even when they don't feel like it because they know that this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So whatever practice you use to pray, I know some of you uh, use the ACTS acronym, you know, uh, uh, adoration, confession, thanks, supplication, or uh, if you're doing the prayer course at the moment with us, you know, the PRAY acronym that they taught us about, pause, rejoice, ask, yield, or maybe it's the daily office, you know, you start with silence and then you read a psalm, and then you respond and pray, and then you finish in psalms. Whatever it is, whatever your habit of prayer is, just turn the heat up on that a bit, and let's get into the regular habit of doing it over and over again. This isn't about how much you pray, right? Don't hear me saying, tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. alarm clock, get up, two hours of prayer before you catch the bus to work. What I'm saying, start where you are. Start really small. If there is no prayer for you, simply just, just, just do the feet on the floor in the morning prayer. 
You get out of bed, your feet hit the floor. Good morning, God. This is your day. Help me rejoice in it and be glad. Amen. Oh, good morning, Father. I just want to acknowledge your presence today. You're with me. Thanks. Let's just start simple, basic. I'm doing this with my kids, right? My kids who have the attention span, unless it's gaming, the attention span of like a, you know, a cute puppy. We're going to do this together. 70 days. I said to Judah this morning, this is the, this is the booklet. And I showed him the numbers on the inside. So we're going to do this for 70 days. He goes, easy. <laughs> I, love, I love the confidence. But if I can do this with my kids, anyone can do this. If I have time to do this, anyone can do this. And there is power in doing this together. But really in the end, I want this to stand on the foundation of the promise of James 4 verse 8. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You know, it is foolish of us to claim a promise that God never made. That, that's, that's silly. To claim a promise that God has never made. But when God makes a promise that we don't claim, that's equally as foolish. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's what this is about. Enjoying communion with the Father. Practicing the presence of God. And my hope, my prayer, and my firm belief is that as we do this as a church, we will know what it looks like to enjoy at even deeper levels our adopted privilege to call God Father. And I'm going to do that right now. So I invite you to stand, church, and pray together before we, before we worship together. And let's just remind ourselves of the, the crazy privilege to be able to pray right now. So with every eye closed, every head bowed in this room, Father, What a beautiful privilege to be able to say that. That you are our Father. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for listening. What a privilege, God. If we're honest, Lord, so, so often our prayer has become duty. And it lacks the intimacy that we know we want. For some in this room, wrestling with unanswered prayer and feeling jaded. For some are just like, I don't even know where my faith is at in this season. For others, God, you are so close that the thin veil that separates heaven and earth feels almost non-existent. But God, you know every single one of us. You know us better than we know ourselves. And we long to know you more. We want to enjoy the privilege of being called sons and daughters. So God, would you take this 
next 70 days and do something profound with it in the life of our church, in our lives. Would you meet us where we're at and journey with us, no matter how far down the shallow end of the pool we are, journey with us towards deeper intimacy with you. I thank you that you love us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.